Good morning. We're going to be reading from Amos chapter 4, the whole chapter this morning. And the heading is, Israel has not returned to God. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaches in the wall and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do declares the Sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ruth. Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be here again and to keep working through the book of Amos. I'm just going to pray as we consider this text. Lord, we thank you that your word is true and it is always there. Lord, we thank you that your words to Amos and through Amos so many centuries ago, Lord, are still your words to us today. Help us as we consider them to understand them well and how they apply to our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before we get into this week's passage, I was going to flag last week one of the um, sort of take-home applications I mentioned was encouraging us to consider our purchasing practices, the, the things we buy and the, the exploitation impact they might have 
but I didn't really give you anything to sort of latch onto, anything concrete. So during the week, I went to the Baptist World, um, Baptist World Aid site and I printed off a dozen copies of their ethical fashion guide, which is a great just guide to think about some of the different companies and the products they use and the labour they use. Anyway, so I put a dozen of them at the front desk, but if you're interested in continuing to, to check brands and you maybe um, copies run out, I encourage you to check out their website. It's very easy to use, good chance to look up any brands that you're shopping from. I think it's got about 800 Australian clothing brands. Uh, and just to see how they stack up, what their supply lines are like, what their ethical practices are like. So I just thought I'd mention that before we get into today's passage. Today we're in Amos chapter 4, as Ruth read out, and uh, this is our, my last one for a little while. Jeff will do the next two sections. But in both this section of Acts, in chapter 4 and in next week, we see critiques of empty religion, critiques of empty religion. The problem in Amos at this time was not that there was religious practice, but what God really wanted wasn't there. So if I can just jump to the next slide, Rog. I wanted to think about this, this idea of empty religion and whether empty religion is something we see today. I think by empty religion I mean something like the practices of religion without the heart, without acknowledging God or having personal meaning to it. Uh, you might have your thoughts on this particular topic. I think it's a, it's a good topic to consider. And I think there are examples of this around still today. One example that came to my mind was using, say, religious items as, as talismans, almost charms. Um, I've put up an image there. I saw recently, again, that the, the intro, the, the first scene from the film Gangs of New York. I'm not sure if any of you have seen it. It is a fairly violent film. But in the first scene, these two gangs, a Protestant gang and a Catholic gang, fight each other to the death on the streets of New York. And before they do, they variously receive communion or tuck a Bible into their bag. Uh, using these things as almost sort of charms or talismans rather than really considering what Jesus says about what they're about to do. Another example might be something like saying grace before a meal without really being thankful. And this is something um, we need to keep an eye on in our household. Our kids love saying grace. They love giving thanks to God before a meal to the point where it's become a competition. Who can say it first? Whoever misses out is often quite upset I have a concern perhaps the real meaning of giving thanks to God for the food is being lost. So that's something that we, we're keeping an eye on. Um, another example that comes to mind with empty religion is that there are some celebrities who do like to use the name of God to invoke a certain credibility rather than necessarily acknowledging God in their life. When you look at their, their lifestyles, their, their personal attitudes, it shows for some this can be a bit performative rather than heartfelt. Now, as Baptists, and, and I, I want to be a little bit careful here, but I do suspect perhaps we, we can sometimes feel like we occupy the moral high ground a little bit on the question of empty religion. Baptists are famous, and I think rightly so, for scrutinising all sorts of uh, traditional practices to ask the question, is this just for appearances or is there real useful meaning in this? I remember I had a, um, I had a candle up. I think I use it for a kid's talk. And I had it up and I just sort of left it on the side there. And I left it there for an extra week without really thinking. And after that Sunday, someone came up to me and said, what was the candle for? Why was there a candle up there? And I think that's a, that's a healthy level of scrutiny to ask those questions. Is there a good reason for that symbol? Or are we just kind of, you know, just adding it for decoration? We don't tend to have a lot of rituals without considering their meaning. But I would also say 
As good as that is, I don't think we're inoculated from the risks of empty religion. I think it's a question we need to keep asking ourselves because it can be something we need to have our eyes open to. All right, well, let's get into Amos and we'll come back to this in a moment. In Amos chapter 1, we considered God's judgment upon the nations for their war crimes. And then in chapters 2 to 3, we looked at God's judgment upon Israel. But here it was mainly for crimes of social injustice, like I mentioned before, uh, exploitation, and also false worship were in focus. Today's God, today God's word of judgment continues against Israel, but the, the focus sharpens a bit. And most of it's this comparison between empty religion and God, what God really wants. But I wonder if because the focus of chapter 4 is mostly on worship practice, it begins with a reminder about the other big area of sin in Israel, which is social sin. So I'll just read verses 1 to 3. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to their husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall and you'll be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Chapter 4 begins with a focus on the rich women of Israel, the, the women of that upper class who had benefited from the prosperity of Israel and as you can see here, were clearly doing so at the expense of the poor. Now I should say as well, ladies, if you feel like this is a bit harsh, singling out the women here, Amos is going to be directly talking about the sin of some of the rich men in about two chapters' time. So you can, you can look forward to that as well. But it's worth noting here, this isn't all the women. This is the women of power who are oppressing the needy. Um, they're described as cows of Bashan, which is a pretty rude term, really. Bashan was famous cattle country in Israel. But they're people who benefit from the suffering of the poor. And they also have this demanding attitude to their husbands, saying, bring us some drinks. It's a... It's an intentionally unpleasant image that's being put forward here. Rich women lounging around, benefiting from exploitation. And God says these, these ones, they won't escape the exile. He even says they'll be taken away with hooks or fish hooks, which was a common practice for exiles. Often when people were blinded, it's quite an unpleasant image, but the captors would drag them with hooks in their mouth or nose. So one unpleasant image is replaced with another as God confirms his judgment on his people. But then the focus shifts, and the main focus of this chapter is really about the failure of empty religion. Go to Bethel and sin, Amos says. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Sovereign Lord. It's only two verses, but God unpacks some of their religious practices and the issues there. As we saw in the last chapter, at this time, Israel was engaged in various acts of false worship, worshipping gods other than the Lord. But the focus here is really on worship of the Lord God, but with the problems with it. God says through Amos, go to Bethel and Gilgal and sin. These were historically places where God had a fresh start with his people, but now they've become places of sin. Part of the problem is that people were offering sacrifices there when really the only place sacrifices were supposed to be offered was in Jerusalem at the temple. But there's more going on here. It says they burned leavened bread as a thank offering. When God is clear in his law that leavened bread, that's bread made with yeast, 
It's not suitable as a sacrifice. In Leviticus we read, Every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast. For you're not to burn any yeast or honey in a food offering presented to the Lord. And we also read that people were bragging and boasting about their free will offerings. What was supposed to be a practice of the heart, an overflow of love and dedication to God, has become a practice of boasting and bragging. Maybe people will be saying to their neighbour, oh, you know, I'm off, I'm off again, off I go, up to, the, up to the high place, up to the shrine to offer a temple. This is really important to me, you know, this is something I, I really want to do properly. God's chiding them for this attitude. He says, you're, you're keeping up appearances. You love to do this, you love to brag about your worship. What's the problem here? Well, God's people are committed to the practice of worship without the heart of worship. They're committed to the practice of worship without the heart of worship. They go through the motions. They bring those sacrifices regularly. They do the actions they're supposed to. They may have even thought they were doing what God wanted. But God says, honestly, the way you do this, well, he calls it sin. It's not even just clumsy or kind of imperfect. He says it's sinful. They're they're sacrificing at the wrong places. They're sacrificing the wrong bread. But most of all, they're doing it with the wrong heart. They're boasting and bragging, trying to impress others rather than worship God. Rather than coming to God in prayer and faithfulness, seeking to honour and worship God, to confess, God says, no, what you're doing is empty religion. So, good question to ask, is this a risk for us as well? How might empty religion be a risk? I think a small risk can be doing worship incorrectly. That was a small part of what Israel was doing wrong here. I think that's probably the smaller risk. Maybe it could be not acknowledging God as he's revealed himself to us, using lazy language about God or ourselves in worship or, or focusing on our experience rather than the truth about God. That's a risk, but I think the bigger risk is being committed to the practice of worship without the heart, of going through the motions rather than engaging our hearts with the Lord. I gave a couple of examples of before, and I want to say this is, this is certainly as much a risk for me as it is for you. As part of my role here as pastor, I do undertake the practices of our faith, of our religion. That's, that's something that I do as part of my role. And constantly checking that I'm not just doing it for its appearance, but constantly checking my heart is something I need to do. There's probably a few red flags, I think, um, as we consider this question. One, one might be during our times of prayer or maybe even in church, do we echo the sentiments of the prayer we hear in our head, reflecting those thoughts to God, or is there a risk that we might just start to zone out? During the songs, do we think about the words? Do we use them as a declaration to God, uh, or do we just sort of enjoy the music? Maybe during the message right now, perhaps even, are we, are we trying to hear, trying to learn of God, or are we just maybe someone's looking for things to be frustrated about, maybe the choice of my clothing or or something I said unclearly. But I reckon really the question of empty religion is answered in our own prayer time. In our own personal prayer, what does that look like? Do we pray regularly? Do we pray for things during the day? Do we pray with a sense of directing our thoughts and our desires to God? Do we do this when nobody's watching? I think these are some of the great questions that can reveal either empty religion or heartfelt faith. But God doesn't just critique religious practice in a vacuum. He, he actually he wants something else. 
There's something else he wants from his people. And in the next six verses, we hear this. This is a repeated pattern. And we read this five times where God has caused some trouble on his people as a warning. It's a prompt for them to act, but they didn't get it. And each time we read, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. So just to kind of keep us awake as well. And, and, and again, this is foreseeing the pattern. There's a purpose to this because I realize I've just been talking about empty ritual. I'd love you to help me with this. So I'm going to read the, the words in regular font. And if you can read the bold words, just to get that pattern, to, to hear the word of the Lord as that rhythm comes through. Let's, let's do that now. Let's hopefully this works out. So we read, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you, as I did to Egypt. I, I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, you are like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. All these things God sent to the people, lack of food, lack of rain, blight and mildew, locusts, plagues, military defeat, natural disaster. God said, I sent you this as a clue, as a prompt, a hint of more trouble to come. These are warnings that were not taken up. And these examples also, they line up with a list of blessings that God had previously promised his people back in Leviticus chapter 26. I want to try and walk us through this just quickly. It's a little messy, but there's those seven disasters that God said, I gave you these as, as clues, as prompts. And in Leviticus, this is back when God had given his law to his people. God said, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, and then he lists these blessings. So if they obey God, God says, I'll send you rain is its season and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit, food and rain. God also says, I will grant peace in the land. You'll lie down and no one will make you afraid. I'll remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. So peace. And as you read through Leviticus 26, you get this picture of food growing well. There's no mildew. There's no locusts eating it up. There's no natural disasters or plague. There's abundance there's prosperity. In Leviticus, God says, if you obey my laws, you'll receive blessing in the land. In Amos, God's saying, I sent you the opposite of these things. I sent you the opposite of all those blessings as a clue that you might realize what you've done, but you didn't pick it up. I, I, I wanted to put this in a diagram because I love a diagram. Leviticus, if you obey my laws, there'll be these blessings. In Amos, there are these troubles, so... Hopefully, God wanted his people to see, okay, that's because we haven't been obeying God. For the, the really switched-on scholar reading Leviticus in Amos's day, God was hoping they would think, wow, okay, this is what's happened. We haven't obeyed God, so we've received the opposite of the blessings. God was trying to send them this message, but they continually failed to receive it. 
But it's not just a message, is it? There's a goal from God here. God says, you have not returned to me. This is what God really wants. He wants repentance. The people offered him religious practice, pretty enthusiastic, but uh, ultimately pretty empty and often incorrect. God says, no, no, what I want is repentance. I want you to return to me. I want you to come back to me. Realize your sin and evil. See these clues. Come back in sorrow, repentance, and fellowship with me again. And he wants them to return, doesn't he? He craves it. God desires close relationship to his people. He sends these prompts, but they don't return. An obvious question for us at this point can be, how should we see disasters, disasters that befall us or maybe befall our nation? Because from this passage, right, it can seem very logical to work backwards, to think, you know, maybe, oh, hold on, we're in a drought, perhaps, drought season. Is that God's judgment upon us for some specific sin that we've caused? God's calling us back to repentance. Or or maybe even if you think, my family member has a serious illness, maybe is that God's judgment for some sin in my family? Now, in Amos, God was actually saying to his people, you should have made that link. They should have read God's warning into that trouble that was caused. That's what God was hoping would happen. But should we do the same thing ourselves? Well, I've spoken about this before uh, in messages, but I just want to reiterate it because it's always a good thing to clarify. We need to avoid this temptation to draw a line between some specific sin and some disaster. Here's what's clearest from the Bible. Disaster and trouble in the world is, in a general sense, a consequence of sin, a consequence of original sin and the fall and the infection of sin in our world. When humanity first sinned, God outlined the impact that was going to have. Instead of, for example, easy access to food, he said thorns and thistles are going to grow up. It's going to make it really hard. There are going to be these challenging consequences because of sin. Sin is the root cause of suffering, but in a general sense. And Jesus is very clear that all sorts of people, faithful people and evil people, are going to experience a mix of blessing and trouble in their life because that's what the world is like now. Jesus says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We know Job's friends in the book of Job Uh, When he was suffering terrible calamities, personal calamities, his friends tried to make that very direct link, didn't they? They tried to say, well, because you've suffered like this, must be due to some terrible sin. And at the end of the book, we see God pronouncing the friends to be wrong. They've actually got it wrong this time. How should we respond then to disaster and suffering today? Well, we should remember that God is in control, even when it doesn't look like it. We should be reminded this world is twisted and distorted by the consequences of sin. And those will be many and varied. But we should avoid drawing those lines between particular suffering and particular sin. Well, where does all this leave Israel in Amos's time? Our chapter ends with a really stark picture. God says to his people, I am coming. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel... Prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God is what we read. Now, depending on how you read this, this might sound either positive or negative. Even today, as believers, we might talk about wanting to see God, wanting to encounter God in a really positive way. The idea of seeing Jesus should be encouraging for us. 
But it could also be quite ominous, couldn't it? Prepare to meet your God. Which is it here? Is it positive or negative? I think really it could be both. And I think that's kind of the point. In the very next verse, chapter 13, you actually see all different aspects of God presented. Firstly, there's some descriptions of God's creativity and revelation to people. Positive things. He who formed the mountains, who created the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind. And then we hear, this is also the God of judgment and power, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the height of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. I think the message from this chapter here is clear. Israel has this choice. How do they want to meet God? How do they want to meet God? Because if they continue to ignore these prompts from God to repent, continue in their empty religion, hoping that's going to satisfy God, well, they should prepare themselves for God's judgment. But if they heed God's warnings, and if they turn back to God in repentance and sorrow, if they reform their religion to true heart worship of God, God is a God who seeks blessing and relationship with his people. This is a choice we face as well, isn't it? And I think this is the more pressing question for us. What do we choose? What, what do I choose? What do you choose? See, we will also meet God on the last day. Um, I think that line there from Amos could equally be applied to all us, all people in history. Prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. In the book of Philippians, there's a, a wonderful picture of all the earth bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus and acknowledging him as king on the last day. Some will bow the knee gratefully, trusting in their saviour, and others will bow reluctantly as those facing judgment. Let me just read that from Philippians chapter 2. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Maybe some of the comments I've been sort of saying about empty religion are a bit unsettling. Uh, maybe for some of us, we know this is a risk. This is a risk we need to keep watch on. The risk of going through the motions of religion, doing it for appearance rather than out of a heart's desire. But maybe for you, it's a different issue. Maybe it's something else. But the response God wants from all of us is the same. We are called to return to the Lord, to come back to him in repentance for when we fail God acknowledging when we reject God, our sin and our evil, whatever they might be for us, and praying for God's mercy. And we do this, don't we, with the wonderful assurance that as we come before God in repentance, we are forgiven our sins. Thanks be to God. We are restored to right relationship with God and forgiven. We don't know when Jesus will return, but let me encourage us with these words. Prepare to meet your God Prepare to meet your God. Today we're actually going to meet God again in another special way. We've, we've met God in his word, as we've heard from Amos. And now we're going to meet God at the table. Uh, as we gather to share communion, I think it's a, a, a good week to do it because it's a good chance to remind ourselves this is not an empty religious ritual that we go through, an empty practice that we can just go through and zone out. No, it's a reminder to not let this special and important thing that we do lose its impact. But a chance to come before to God today, to come in repentance, preparing to meet God, entrusting our sin and failure to God, and being reminded that as we receive, we receive from God what he offers to us. The life of Jesus, sacrificed 
for us as represented in the bread and the cup. Let me pray before we receive this morning. Lord God, today we thank you for your word in Amos. We thank you for the reminder to your people long ago to turn away from empty religion practice and to come before you in heartfelt desire to return to you in repentance and seek you with their heart. Lord, today we confess for the times when our religious practice has been empty, when we have gone through the motions of worshipping you without our heart. And Lord, we are sorry. Lord, we thank you so much for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ, that Jesus, you came and you lived and died for our sake and you rose to new life, that we can be forgiven and restored to relationship with God as beloved sons and daughters. Thank you, Lord. Today, as we gather at your table, Lord, I pray you would prepare us to receive from you again today and to be reminded of your wonderful sacrifice for us. Amen. Well, the night before Jesus died, he gathered his followers around the table.